Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and the generous gifts of our listeners to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you and to the world. If you don't already partner with Fighting for the Faith, visit our website at fightingforthefaith.com and click on one of our friendly yellow buttons. One says join our crew, the other says donate. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $8.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. If you want to specify the amount, you click on the donate button or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. And let me thank you for your support. We cannot do what we are doing here without it. And now, on to the program. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith, Wednesday, April 30th, 2014. Alright, today will be a light episode, but you're not going to hear anything good, at least not from who we're playing. That's right, it's our tradition here during this week, we only play bad Easter sermons, so you're going to get two more today for our contest. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. No shortage of crazy things being Set out there, we slow down, stop, open up our Bibles, and compare to all of these popular winds of doctrine, if you would, to what God's Word says in context to see if we're being taught the truth or if we're, well, somebody's trying to pull the wool over our eyes. You get what I'm saying. All right, so <clears throat> it's uh, Worst Easter Sermon of the Year contest week and um, normally on Wednesdays we have a light episode of fighting for the faith where I you know I turn the microphone over to uh, somebody who's done a good lecture on a good biblical doctrinal apologetic topic and uh, and you get to be edified <laughs> yeah not today no <laughs> no um, yeah since we're in the middle of our worst Easter sermon of the year contest you get to hear two new contestants and um, Decided to switch it up a little bit. Like I said at the beginning of the week, what I'm trying to do is find um, like the quintessential examples of particular types of bad uh, Easter sermons. So what we're going to do today is we're going to begin with like a standard mainline liberal Easter sermon. Okay, now understand mainline liberal Easter sermon means that the pastor is an unbeliever. He doesn't actually believe that Jesus rose from the grave. Um, and so religion, you know, Christianity is really about, you know, th- everything in the Bible is allegorical. And it all boils down to kind of like a really nice sounding social justice version of the law. You know, if you're really a Christian, you're going to, you know, make sandwiches for the poor. If you're really a Christian, you know, you're going to, you know, it, it's it's all law. There is no gospel. And uh, and so um, you're going to hear a sermon from Jack Soper of Arapaho United Methodist Church in Richardson, Texas. 
and uh, and he's going to explain to us, you know, why the truths of the resurrection story. Well, they aren't really in the details of the resurrection story. Those are kind of like embellishments in order to teach the truth. In other words, the resurrection didn't happen. That's really what he's saying. Then we'll take a break. And when we come back from the break, sermon number two comes to us via Northern Heights Lutheran Church in Arden Hills, Minnesota. And uh, we'll be listening to the sermon by uh, Per Nilsson. And um, it's just entitled Easter 2014. And it, again, it, it, this is a, I, I think this would be an example of unbelief, but uh, this is a, of a different stripe. And what I mean by that is that uh, the sermon we're going to be listening to uh, allegorizes the resurrection in such a way that now uh, God is all about resurrecting your dead dreams and things like that inside of your life. So that's how we're going to spend today's episode of Fighting for the Faith. I do recommend that you make yourself comfortable. We've got a lot of ground to cover, but uh, since we're actually doing sermon reviews for our sermon review, our sermon contest, you know, well, let, let's stick to our tradition here. Here we go. Wow, wow, wow. The good, the bad, the ugly. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermons come to us via Rapaho United Methodist Church in Richardson, Texas, and Northern Heights Lutheran Church in Arden Hills, Minnesota. Contestant number three for our worst Easter Sermon of the Year contest is the Reverend Jack Soper of Arapahoe United Methodist Church, and we'll be listening to his sermon just entitled Easter Sunday. Sermon number two... Well, that one's from Northern Heights, and it's just entitled Easter 2014. Now, each of these sermons have been selected because of their quintessential uh, features that make them the best specimens of this particular type of bad Easter sermonage, if you would. So I recommend that you make yourself comfortable... Relax, pull up a chair, kick up your feet, put your fuzzy bunny slippers on. They will enhance your listener experience. And don't pound your head into your keyboard. Don't drive off the road. What you're about to hear is heresy. What you're about to hear is Bible twisting. And the reason you need to hear it is so that you're familiar with how it operates, so that you can protect yourself, your family, your friends, and preach the real gospel and proclaim the real comforting, assuring gospel message of Easter. Let me go ahead and kill the music. And without any further ado, here is the uh, Reverend Jack Soper of United, of Arapaho United Methodist Church. Here we go. Happy Easter to all of you. Isn't it just wonderful that we can be together today celebrating our faith as we do? The power of that faith through love is made real in this experience, in this sacred space, because we're here. Now, this sounds really pious, but keep this in mind. 
he doesn't believe Jesus bodily rose from the grave. Nope. Um, so what is, who is his faith in and for what? We're here together. And so we turn to Scripture as always we do because it's through Scripture that the Word of God is revealed. And this morning we're going to look at Matthew's um, record of... Now, did you catch that? It's through Scripture that the Word of God is revealed. Notice he didn't say that Scripture is the Word of God. No. A mainline liberal does not believe that the Bible is the Word of God. No. Uh, They'll say the Bible contains the Word of God, not the Bible is the Word of God. And so through the Scriptures, the Word of God is revealed. It's so subtle. It's so, so slippery, so interesting. But he doesn't actually believe any of the historical narratives, especially the ones that contain miracles. The resurrection of that first Easter. It begins in the 27th chapter, the 57th verse. So listen, will you, for the word of God, as it's proclaimed by God's servant, the evangelist Matthew. When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who was also a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. So Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen cloth and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had hewn in the rock. He then rolled a great stone to the door of the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there sitting opposite the tomb. The next day, that is, after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember what that imposter said while he was still alive. After three days, I will rise again. Therefore, command the tomb to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples may go and steal him away and tell the people he has been risen from the dead. And the last deception would be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, you have a guard of soldiers. Go, make it as secure as you can. So they went with the guard and made the tomb secure by stealing the stone. After the Sabbath, as the first day of the week was dawning, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descending from heaven came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. For fear of him, the guards shook and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid. I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has been raised, as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples He has been raised from the dead, and indeed, he is going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him. This is my message for you. So they left the tomb quickly with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. Suddenly, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. 
And they came to him, took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. Amen. So, this past Wednesday, I gave the program at our weekly gathering of the United Methodist Men. Before I began, I told the guys that on this Easter Sunday, that's today, I would preach my 39th Easter sermon. I said that I have already preached on all four gospel accounts of Easter, and if they, the United Methodist men, did not have any fresh and new ideas to share with me about Easter, then I didn't know what I would be saying this morning. Then retell the story. Yeah. Okay, there's four gospel accounts. If you've preached through each of them, for in, you know, one year after another after another, year five, you're going to preach a different account. You're going to say, well, actually, you're going to preach the same account from one of those gospel texts. So sorry, but that's all part of the job of being a pastor. You get to tell the same story again and again and again. It's like reading a book to your small child. You know, you read the book and the child thinks, oh, this is the best thing ever. Can you read it again? And so what do you do? You read it again. Do you change the story? No, you read it again. You know, Oh, you know, the idolatry of innovation. The job of a pastor is to faithfully preach the word, and that means every single time when he preaches a biblical text, even if he's repeating himself, he gets to actually preach that text again and faithfully handle it. Given my naive and terribly arrogant belief that I have said it all, <laughs> I demonstrated my desperation... Yeah, by the way, it's this pastor who actually put the laugh track in. That's not really his church laughing at him. No joke. He went in post-production into his sermon audio and added, no joke, he added the laugh track. As I shared a brief comparison of three different accounts of Jesus' resurrection, those narratives found in what we call the Synoptic Gospels, Mark, Matthew, and Luke. I said that I had preached several Easter sermons on each of those texts, including the one found in the Gospel of Matthew, the story that we just read. My time with the guys was running out, so I asked if any one of them was familiar with the Gospel of Peter. A few had heard of it. Yeah, which isn't a gospel. It's a Gnostic text, and it's not an eyewitness testimony. It's a late second century, you know, just think of it, you know, Gnostic um, fanfic. Yeah, that, that, see, the Gnostic gospels are like, that's what they are. They're, you know, they are Jesus fanfics written in, you know, the second century. None of them are actually eyewitness testimony. They all are, they have a theological agenda of teaching Gnosticism um, and their theology, but um, the thing is, is that the the apostles, the the ones who actually were the eyewitnesses, they bumped into Gnosticism very early on. In fact, the uh, the the apostle John 
in First John specifically is writing against Gnosticism. The Gospel of John itself is written with an anti-Gnostic edge. And so, yeah, the, the apostles knew all about Gnosticism. And so what did the Gnostics do in teaching their heresies? They came up with a really novel way of doing it. They, they created their own quote-unquote Gospels, which are really bad Jesus fanfics. That's what they are. But there wasn't many of them who were familiar with the story of Easter that's found in the Gospel of Peter. I know for a fact that none of you have a copy of the Gospel of Peter embedded in the Bible that you read, no matter what the translation might be. No doubt you do have the three documents that we call the three letters of Peter, but not the Gospel of Peter. You don't have it because it was excluded from the canon or the official collection of New Testament documents. For good reason, it didn't make the cut. The author of that document is unknown, but whoever wrote it sometime in the latter half of the second century, that author was terribly imaginative in telling the Easter story, the story of Jesus' resurrection. The author was so extravagant with his details that the message of this amazing day in the history of our faith was lost in the excesses of his storytelling. In 1887, a French archaeologist was digging around in an ancient monastery located 250 miles south of Cairo, Egypt. In a monk's tomb, he found a small book, a codex made up of 33 pages that contained the story of Jesus' resurrection as it was recorded in the Gospel of Peter. The story of Easter that we read from Matthew's Gospel and the version of Easter found in the Gospel of Peter are somewhat similar yet. The Gospel of Peter takes the sensational to an all-time high. He reports that the tomb of Jesus was locked down, sealed seven times, and the author even names the centurion guard Petronius. The guards pitch tents around the tomb of Jesus. In the Gospel of Peter, when Easter morning arrives, the guards see two angels descend from heaven. The stone in front of the tomb rolls itself away. Nobody touches it. It just becomes animated and it rolls itself away. The two angels enter the tomb and before very long, they emerge helping a third. Why are you preaching about the Gnostic gospel of Peter? Third male figure out of the tomb. A floating cross follows all three of them out of the tomb. The three angels, and of course we can assume that one of those now is Jesus, all three of them ascend to heaven. But then, but then, there's a voice from heaven and the voice says, you have preached to those who sleep. You have preached to those who sleep. And the cross says, yes. Yes, the, the cross starts talking. And the cross says, yes. Now, 
I get the part about preaching to them that sleep. I've done that for the past 40 years. I even keep a list of those of you. Again, he added his own laugh track here. And by the way, the whole idea that uh, that the cross is preached to those who sleep. Uh, Remember, in Gnosticism, it's all about enlightenment. You know, you you get this secret hidden knowledge, gnosis, which then, you know, enlightens you. And so that's all playing into this. Sleep during my sermons. But imagining a cross that walks and talks is more than I can handle. When the Bible was canonized or during that process, when documents were selected to be included or excluded from the Bible, the Gospel of Peter was rejected. It may be that the details of that Gospel were too sensational. That the story... No, the reason they were rejected is because they aren't based on eyewitness testimony. They weren't written by the real Peter. The name Peter was slapped on to that Gnostic quote-unquote gospel in order to give give it some kind of sense of authority. But it wasn't actually written by Peter. Uh huh. It shows up, you know... Almost 200 years after the fact, claiming you know to be teaching us something about Jesus that the church already knew Jesus didn't taught because by then we already had the New Testament. These details were so unbelievable that the truth it intended to communicate was lost. Having said that, I don't want to overlook the fact that there are times, there are times when we have to exaggerate in order to give the truth its necessary emphasis. Now, this is his main thesis, okay? And what he's going to be telling us is that these details about Jesus actually bodily rising from the dead, these are exaggerated details in order to speak the truth. You see, the truth is Jesus didn't actually bodily rise from the dead because the truth is so much deeper than that, you know. It was six or seven years ago, I suppose, on an Easter Sunday. I talked about the movie Big Fish. The screenplay begins with a statement that I find absolutely fascinating. It says... This is a southern story full of lies and fabrications, but made truer for their inclusion. Mm, yeah, yeah. See, see, the Gospels are just like that movie, Big Fish. huh? And yet each and every one of the Gospels claims to be giving us eyewitness accounts of these events the death and resurrection of Jesus. John goes so far as to say the things that we have seen and handled and touched, these are the things that we proclaim to you, that these were not things that they made up. The Gospels come to us as historical eyewitness testimony, and the eyewitness testimony tells us that the tomb was empty and that they saw the physical resurrected Jesus touched and handled him and that he ate with them. And yet this guy, who's supposedly a Christian pastor, is basically teaching unbelief. He is in, insidiously, you know, with nice, schmaltzy, pietistic-sounding Jesus language, teaching that the resurrection didn't happen. 
on Easter Sunday. That's why he didn't start off with, he is risen, he's risen indeed. I mean, what would this guy say? He's risen. Yeah, well, that's not exactly the truth, but the truth is higher than that, you know, kind of thing. So, yeah, in a sense, he's kind of risen-ish, but the the, the truth it's getting, it's so much bigger than, you know, than he's risen indeed, you know? Big Fish is the tale of a father who tells stories that are excessive. They're larger than life. Almost but not quite believable stories of improbable characters and miraculous events. Of all the stories this father tells, there is one story that gets told and retold, and it's the story of that day when his son Will was born. The story has to do with a very big fish, a fish that could not be caught. Will's father would tell him, it's not that it's stronger or faster than other fish. It's just touched by something extra. Call it luck, call it grace. The beast, as they refer to the fish, the beast was a fish like that. He was legend and had taken more hundred-dollar lures than any fish in Alabama. Like others, Will's father had, had pursued that fish for years and years to no avail. But on the day Bill, Will was born, his father had chased that fish clear down a river and finally caught it by using his most prized possession his gold wedding ring, which eventually, after a protracted struggle, the fish returned to him by spitting it up into his hand. The story was so grand to be true, it became unbelievable. It was full of truth, but the details were serious distractions. Remember- mm, yeah, full of truth. See, the story of Jesus' resurrection, it, it's full of truth, but the details are like distractions. You know, actually a dead guy bodily rising from... Who can believe that? Yeah, again, this is a Christian pastor on Easter preaching unbelief. Remember how it begins? This is a southern story full of lies and fabrications, but made truer for their inclusion. Will, however, could just not accept that. He just couldn't accept it. All he hears is that the story of his birthday is nothing but a lie, like countless other stories that his father tells. It is simply unbelievable. For Will, the moment of truth comes when his father is dying. The doctor attending to his father is the same doctor that delivered him on the day of his birth. He asks Will, do you want to hear the story about your birth? Will perks up and he thinks, finally, I'm going to hear the truth. The real story is, of course, not particularly remarkable, not really very exciting at all. Yeah, it, so according to this guy, like the real story of Jesus' resurrection is that he really didn't rise bodily from the grave. No, he, no. In fact, his his bones are moldering somewhere out there in the Judean 
countryside. Um, but, you know, but the truth of the resurrection, that real truth is so much deeper than the, the real details. I mean, don't you feel great in your faith now knowing that, the, you know, that Jesus really didn't rise from the dead? It's then that Will comes to realize that the wild and the extravagant tale about the fish and the ring has more truth in it than the real story could ever contain because the extravagant story of faithful and extraordinary love that his father felt for him and for his mother could never be conveyed with the bare and mundane facts of his birth. It could only be communicated with extravagance. Sometimes we too need a larger-than-life story to describe truth that means the most to us, truth that's more surprising, more remarkable, more holy. Mm, Yeah, see... Jesus didn't really rise from the grave, but the truths that the, that this story is meant to convey, they are so much more surprising and more holy than, you know, than, than the, the dead guy actually rose, you know, that kind of thing. More amazing than any ordinary words can possibly convey. It may be that for some, The story of Easter, as we read it from Matthew's gospel, is rejected because it sounds extravagant with the details of resurrection. And you heard them, huh? Even in Matthew's gospel, there is extravagant language. Yeah, but he didn't really rise from the dead. Extravagant language. For me, though... Hmm, yeah, it, it kind of reminds me of what the Apostle Paul talked about. You know, the Bible actually directly addresses the issue of what if Jesus hasn't actually been raised. <clears throat> 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 12. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? It's not like Paul said, now listen, I understand the the details of Jesus' resurrection sound extravagant, but the truths beyond them are the really holy things that you need to listen to. That's not what he says. But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those who also have fallen asleep in Christ, they have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Hmm. According to Scripture, if Jesus isn't bodily raised, then Christianity is nothing but a bunch of nonsense, and you shouldn't believe it.
And yet here's a Christian pastor at a United Methodist church teaching that those details are extravagant, but the truth beyond them is the really important and holy and surprising thing. Wow. This is rank unbelief. This man isn't even a Christian. He's not. His faith is futile and in vain because whatever he's trusting in, it ain't Christianity and it ain't in the risen Jesus for the forgiveness of his sins. Why is this man being tolerated in a Christian pulpit? Those extravagant details are essential to my understanding of how God functions in our lives. It's for us to understand what it means that a man who was crucified continues to live. And even further, that Christ continues to live in you, in you, in you, in you, in you, and in me. See, it's not that Jesus actually bodily rose again. It's that he rose inside your heart. Oh, wow, I feel so much better. Rank heresy. This man is not even a Christian. He's an unbeliever. He may as well be an atheist, and yet he's being tolerated in a Christian pulpit. Continues to live as our constant companion, continues to live through us so that others, the people we meet, will be blessed by experiencing the sacred love that God gives us to share. Mm. I don't know anything. Yeah, God's, see, we're called to share God's sacred love. Not that Jesus actually bodily rose from the grave. Forget what the Apostle Paul said. I understand he claims that he is an eyewitness to the resurrection because Jesus appeared to them. That can't possibly be happening because miracles are not possible. So it can't mean that. About the physiology of all of that, I really don't. I don't know anything about how that happens. But that it happens. It's true. It's true to me, and I pray that it's true to you. And so we talk about it with extravagant... True to me. Utter subjectivity. Now, it's either true or it's false, and it has nothing to do with whether it's true to you or not. ...language, because it's the only way we can talk about it. What that story we read from Matthew means is that Christ lives in us, and therefore... We will likely live the rest of this day and the rest of every day influenced by that reality. And because we will be influenced by by that reality of God's love, alive and real in us, then every relationship we share, be it in families or with friends, in our community or in the world, It will be more loving. It will be more compassionate. It will be more an expression of grace. In the time when Matthew served the church that he loved, about the year 80 CE, the powers that prevailed were rejecting the church. Political powers and religious powers were casting the church aside as if it were irrelevant. The point that gripped Matthew's soul was the fact that nothing could prevent or stop or impede the living love and grace of God that was revealed through Christ. In Matthew's account of Easter, the guards were told to go make it, the tomb, as secure as you can. The political and institutional powers that prevailed did just that. They did all 
that they could to lock God's love in a tomb, thinking that they could actually control the power of God's love. For Matthew, then, the Easter message seems to be like the message expressed by the Apostle Paul when he said to all of us, nothing, nothing in all of creation can separate us from the love of God revealed through Christ our Lord. My message to you on this Easter morning is that no matter how you assess the details, for God's sake and for your sake, don't miss the message that those stories have been written to preserve and convey. Yeah, the message is that he is the God who he claimed to be. Uh-huh. He is the temple. Yeah, tear down this temple, I'll build it again in three days. He is God in human flesh. He's raised from the grave bodily, just like he said. He's conquered sin, death, and the devil, and he's propitiated the wrath of God by dying in our place on the cross. Yeah, you mean that message? The truth is that Christ is alive. In what sense? And the love of God is alive in you. Oh, yeah. See, Jesus is alive-ish, not bodily, but the love of God is alive in you. Oh, that. Oh, let's put this on a Hallmark greeting card. Oh, yeah. Real, real schmaltzy, isn't it? Now and forevermore. Christ was resurrected on that Easter, that first Easter, so that Christ would then be resurrected in our hearts and souls right here, right now, this morning. Yeah, but not he wasn't resurrected bodily, He's so that he can be resurrected in our hearts, because that's the, the greater truth. And no matter what form death may take for you, it may be, yes, your death, or it may be that you die or are dying with someone you love very much, it may be. Whatever form death takes for you, it kind of takes the same. We all end up stop breathing and the body decays and they have to stick it in a box because it stinks and they have to put it underground so we can do our decaying out of sight and out of mind. You know what I'm saying? In the death of a relationship, it may... The death of a relationship, yeah. Jesus is going to raise that relationship in your heart because he's alive. Maybe fear... It may be an absence of hope. No matter what frightens you or threatens you, you will never be without the power of God's love. You will never be without it. It will not be contained in any tomb. As Christ lives, so will you also. Isn't that what we need the most? I mean, really? No, what I need the most is the forgiveness of my sins and hope for eternal life. I think it is. I need it the most in the world where we live. People struggle to find genuine hope. That's what we need. And you're not offering them any. Your hope is utter hopelessness. It's total darkness and unbelief. Rachel Moe, is a local school teacher in Boston. Last year, she was a runner in the Boston Marathon. A couple of hours after the bombs exploded, she heard on the news about an eight-year-old boy who was one of the people who didn't make it. She wondered if she knew him because she had been teaching in that school system for quite some time. She learned, she learned 
that Martin Richard, the boy who died, was one of her students. She said that Martin was always that kind of kid who wanted to be involved in sports. And because she was a marathon runner, Martin asked her one day, how old do you have to be to run in a marathon? They looked it up on the internet and they discovered that he would have to be 18 years old before he could run in a marathon. And so he went up to her and he said, when I turn 18, we're going to run our first marathon together. She didn't think it was going to be that soon. Often, when she has been training for this year's run, Martin's spirit has gotten her through the really long workouts. You mean the memory of him? She is certain that she will feel Martin running with her tomorrow. Yeah, again, that's nice and, and all of that. But see, the, the thing is, is that Scripture says we die once and then face the judgment. Um, Martin's not floating around disembodied on the earth. This is, again, non-Christian doctrine. Moral. She'll wear a yellow T-shirt, and on the back it reads, Martin Richard and the big number eight. In the Time Magazine article, there's a picture of eight-year-old Martin holding a poster that he made while he was in class with Rachel. And he's holding up this poster, and on the poster it says, No more hurting people. Peace. On the front of her T-shirt, Rachel's T-shirt, it says, Team MR8, peace. This morning at the Easter worship service celebrated at Old South Church, the United Church of Christ church that is at the finish line of the Boston Marathon, runners are being blessed with the love of God given to and shared by all who know the truth of Christ's resurrection. Yeah, well, uh, the truth is he actually bodily rose from the grave, and you just spent uh, you know, pretty much 15 minutes explaining why he didn't. Our daughter, Katie, is there at that church this morning. She was at work just a block away when the bombs went off last year. So today, she decided to be among the faithful who know the power of Christ's love, love that is eternal, love that confronts all fear. Sometimes the language used to talk about Easter sounds extravagant. Yes, it does, because the power of God's love is extravagant. And it's hard to describe without extravagant language. But it's real. It is so real. It's just not real in the sense that Jesus actually really bodily, you know, rose again. That in the simple words of Jesus himself, we can know what it meant when he said, do not Be afraid. 
Amen. Uh, no, can't say amen to that at all. <clears throat> so that was this year's example of uh, liberal, mainline liberal unbelief uh, masquerading as pious Christianity. They know better than the Word of God. They know better than the apostles. They've figured out, they've cracked the code. They've figured it out. Jesus didn't really bodily raise from the grave. No, 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 no. The extravagant details that they're telling in the gospel, <laughs> I mean, that's just... Uh, <clears throat> They're just that, extravagant details to help us get to a bigger truth. What's the bigger truth? Oh, you know, the love of God has raised in your heart. So there you go. <clears throat> That's sermon number one today. We're going to take a break, and when we come back, we have a second sermon that we will be reviewing. So if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter, my name there, at pirate Christian. Quick break when we come back. Second sermon, actually, contestant number four in our worst Easter sermon of the year contest. Stay tuned. Don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. Sissioprified religiosity won't save you. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Python's Flying Circus Church. You're listening to the Emergence Sports Network here on Pirate Christian Radio. You've tuned in just in time to catch today's Emergence Ball match between the Pomo Bombers and the Majestic Mystics. Today's match is proudly brought to you by Rex Quando's Bible Pants. There's the buzzer, and they're off. McLaren dribbles a pigskin down to first base, takes out his putter, and... Whoa! Jones checks McLaren against the boards, and then passes to Padgett in left field. But wait! Bulls Weber is charging from the 10-yard line, and she slam-dunks from the foul line! That's a birdie! The crowd is going wild! When was the last time you saw something like that? I don't think I've ever seen anything like this. Okay, play is resuming. There's Rollins. He serves to Bell. Bell snatches the snitch. And then Hail Mary passes to McLaren. McLaren is in the end zone. Oh, and he slaps it back to third base. Tickle grabs her wicket and then punts one out into center court. It looks like Jones and Padgett are double-teaming Bowles Weber. He doesn't have a shot, so she slices one off into the rough. McLaren is there to make the safety, but Padgett grabs McLaren's face mask and then throws down to second base. What a brilliant save that was. Jones takes out his driver, then sends one out to midfield. Tickle headbutts the ball and then sends it back to McLaren. He vaults over the pummel horse. Oh, and he sticks the landing! Unfortunately, the degree of difficulty wasn't that high, but McLaren racked up seven brownie points. Tickle sets up for the kickoff. But wait, Jones is trying to steal third base. 
Nickel slap shots the ball back to Bulls Weber, but Jones is safe. He's safe. That means it's going to be third down with 44 meters to the pin. Looks like this match is going to go into sudden death. Don't pay more for travel than you need to. Hi, Chris Rosebro here to tell you about Pirate Christian Radio's featured advertiser, Cheapo Air. Cheapo Air is a leading provider of airline tickets, hotel rooms, and rental cars. Cheapo Air has extensive partnerships with the top travel brands in the world. Now, whether you need to travel for business or for pleasure, Cheapo Air can help you save money. And if you visit our website, piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, we have a promo code that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. So visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, then click on the banner and book your low-cost travel today. And remember, a portion of your purchase at Cheapo Air goes to support Pirate Christian Radio. Morning. If you believe that Jesus didn't actually bodily rise from the grave, but instead rises in your heart to give you hope, you're an unbeliever. You're not a Christian. You're something different. And if you're a pastor, you need to step down. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. And you can partner with us by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you are signing up to automatically contribute $8.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. It's a great way to support us. Of course, if you'd like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you could do so by clicking on the donate button or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Let me thank you for your support. We can't do what we're doing here without it. Okay, moving along. Sermon number two again comes to us via Northern Heights Lutheran Church up there in uh, Minnesota. And uh, Pierre Nielsen is the uh, person that we will be listening to. And this is a sermon about resurrecting uh, the dream. <clears throat> yeah, resurrecting the dream. I, <laughs> Yeah, so apparently, you know, Jesus bodily rose from the graves in order to resurrect your dead dreams. Yeah, <clears throat> here we go. Doing well. Hey, let's give a round of applause to our uh... Our uh, acrobat team. You had an, an acrobat. Really? Did you have circus animals and monkeys too? Yeah. <laughs> that was awesome. Uh, how many of your hearts went <gasps> when they started dropping down really quickly? <laughs> yeah, I know. It's crazy. Just wonderful having them here. Absolutely wonderful having them here. Uh, good to have those who are joining us online this morning. Thanks for being with us today. We pray that the Spirit of the living God really reaches in and, and touches your heart in a deep way. I'm going to teach you a little something right off the bat. Um, I didn't do it in the first hour, but last hour we had a big group of Norwegians here. And, uh, and so I asked my dad, actually, I said, how do you say he is risen in Norwegian? Because we, we come from Norway. And, um, and he said, you say, Han er... Op standing. 
right? So that, that's going to be your lesson for today. You ready? Just say it with me. Han er opstanden. Right? Say it again. Han er opstanden. And literally it means he's standing up. <laughs> right? The Norwegians like to keep it just simple. Just he's standing up. That's what he did. Raised from the dead, he's just standing up. Well, from John's Gospel in the 20th chapter, we're going to read the resurrection story, starting at verse 1. It says this, Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, They've taken the Lord out of the tomb, and they, we don't know where they've put him. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter, who was behind him, arrived and went into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the burial cloth that had been around Jesus' head. The cloth was folded up by itself, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. It was a pretty amazing uh, series of stories at the beginning of worship today. So here's the question. Why did Jesus rise from the grave as we listen to the story about resurrecting dreams? Why did Jesus rise from the dead? What was that all about? Well, is it about, you know, raising again for your justification? That means you're being declared righteous by God as a gift through faith? Is that what that's about? Well, let's continue. Pay attention to the details. They matter. All right. Let's just praise God for the work that he's doing in Maggie's life and Gretchen's life, the Hansons. Mark Williams, and many of your lives as well. I mean, God is moving in such remarkable ways. One of the points of commonality in all of those narratives is that every one of those stories, at some point or another, had a dream for the future that was challenged or even shattered. Uh huh. So notice, no sooner does he read the biblical text of the resurrection that he mentions some other testimonies that were given earlier in the service, and he basically is making the claim that all of these stories, the story of Jesus' resurrection, stories of the parishioners there at this church, they're all the same. This is all about dreams for the future. Mm-hmm. This is another form of unbelief. That's what this is. Rank unbelief. Retooling it so that the text doesn't actually mean what it says. And what God did... For each one of them was he took their dreams, the shattered brokenness of their lives, and he restored it, but not necessarily to what they had in mind, but for the purpose of his glory, for the purpose of his kingdom. And that's what God does in the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, dreams are an important thing, and when I talk about dreams, I'm not, I'm not talking here about the stuff that happens when we go to sleep at night, because some of those dreams are, are great. And that some of them are just weird, aren't they? <laughs> I mean, they're just, they're just weird. It's like, how did that get in my head? I have no idea. No, I'm not talking about those kind of dreams at all. The type of dream I'm talking about is a dream that projects you out into the future. And what on earth does this have to do with Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection for our sins and for our justification? Hmm? 
A dream that says, I would like to do this. I would like to be this. I would like for this to happen. There's a calling in my life. There's a path that's been set. There's a direction given. Dreams are an important part of who we are. John Maxwell, business author, pastor, writes these words as he refers John, John Maxwell. So now we're going to a John Maxwell quote. Yeah, if you find yourself in a church and this is what they're preaching on Easter Sunday, run. Run. You are not being fed the truth. On Genesis 15, 5, the story of Abraham in the Old Testament, here's what he writes. He says, most people who are dissatisfied and discouraged feel that way because they haven't grasped a vision for their life. And then he goes on to state that one of the tasks of leaders is to help people understand their dreams, whether it's in the home or at work or in the church, to understand the calling that God has in our lives. If you want to bring it down to the world of of art, the great poet Carl... Boy, he is moving as rapidly as possible away from the biblical text that he just read regarding the resurrection. Isn't that crazy? It's like he's fleeing from it. I can't preach what it says. Let's change the subject and run away. Maybe no one will notice. Berg says this, nothing happens unless first a dream... And one of the great pastors in the, in the last 20 years, a gentleman by the name of Wayne Cordero, New Hope Fellowship in Hawaii. Yeah, right, another purpose-driven heretic, yeah. This about dreams. He says, God deposits a dream of what we can be for him, a dream that acts as our internal honing device. Really? And if this is really what God wanted us to believe, why, doesn't, why isn't there any biblical passage that says this anywhere? Dreams, what God is doing, where we're going, how we're getting there are such an important part of our lives as people, and particularly as people who follow Jesus. Now, John Maxwell continued his study on, on um, Genesis 15. And what he did was that he set out three questions that we can ask to help us come to grasp what God's vision for our life is, what our passion is, and how we're directed in that passion. Again, this is an Easter sermon, preached on Easter Sunday. He read the biblical text regarding Jesus' resurrection, and now we are 10,000 miles away from that. And here are the three questions that he sets before us, and I want you to just ponder them with me, if you would. Question number one, what do you cry about? I mean, what's the stuff that really touches deep in your heart? Number two, what do you sing about? What fires you up? What gets you excited? What makes you celebrate? The thing I cry about is my wretched sinful condition. The thing I sing about is my crucified and risen Lord who died on the cross for my sins, rose again on the grave for my justification inside and number three what do you dream about Hmm. the resurrection for myself new body no sin world without end new heavens new earth being able to see jesus face to face no longer making it so that i have to walk by faith and not by sight but eventually being able to walk by sight to see my crucified and risen lord to see to see the scars in his hands, his feet, and his side. 
because all of that was done for me and for my sins, to save somebody as sinful as me. How's that? What do you dream about? Come back with me now to a, to a rather dark scene, spiritually and emotionally. It's the day of Jesus' crucifixion. And the disciples are, are gathered in a place called the Upper Room. The Upper Room uh, is a significant place for them. It's a really significant place for them. When they were in Jerusalem, they spent a bunch of time there, apparently, if if we were eight or nine years old, we might call the upper room our clubhouse. Um, if we lived in Boston, um, we might call it Cheers, you know, that place where everybody knows your name and they're always glad you came, right? That's, that's the kind of place this is. So the upper room is kind of like a bar, social gathering? Really? Okay, yeah. Boy, this is vapid. It's the kind of place it is. But, but for the disciples, it's more than just a hangout location. For the disciples, the upper room is a holy place. It was there that Jesus washed their feet and gave them a new commandment. He said, I I want you to love others as I have loved you. It was there that Jesus spread the table before them and ushered in this covenant. He said, They shared the Last Supper. He said, this is the covenant in my blood shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. This is my body broken for you. It was there in the upper room that that happened. It was in the upper room that Jesus made his first appearance to the disciples after being raised from the dead. And if you continue to read through the book of John and into the book of Acts, you'll find that that the disciples gathered in the upper room after Jesus ascended into heaven and they gathered in the upper room when they selected the new disciple after Judas had killed himself and they wanted to bring the number back to 12 and so they elected Matthias and they were in the upper room when the power of the Holy Spirit poured down in wind and tongue of flame and converted 3,000 people. That's where they were. They were in the upper room. It's not... Yeah, and remember the sermon? The sermon was repentance and the forgiveness of sins. Read the story in Acts 2. Simple hangout location. It is a holy place, a place where they expect to meet God. That's what the upper room is. It's a really important thing for us to understand that because this next scene that I'm going to read occurs in the upper room. And what takes place there is that there's a poignant moment between a disciple named Thomas, they call him the doubter, and the person of Jesus. And Thomas has his world turned on end through this interaction. Let me read for you from John's Gospel, the 20th chapter. So now we're going to read another resurrection account. The question again, once he's read it, what's it going to mean? Because he's already set this up that we're all about, well, resurrecting dead dreams and having a vision for our future and discovering our purpose. Verse 24. Now Thomas, called Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail mark in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here. See my hand. Reach out and put your hand into my side. Stop doubting and believe. 
Thomas said to him, my Lord and, and my God. Then Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Yeah, the, the ones who believe that Jesus is their Lord and God, who died on the cross for their sins. Right, yeah, is that what you're going to talk, uh, talk to us about and really dig into? Thomas, the man we just read about, was a guy who struggled with faith. He struggled with faith in that moment. And not only did he struggle with faith, one of the reasons he struggled with faith was because his dream of who Jesus was was shattered. But what makes this scene important... Oh, see, his dream about Jesus was shattered. Oh, yeah. So Jesus is going to resurrect Thomas's dream. <sighs> wow. Wow. Wow is this bad. What makes it significant is when we come to understand a little bit more of who Thomas is. See, if you go back into the 11th chapter of the Gospel of John, you find out that, that Thomas is passionate about following the mission of Jesus and having him seated as an earthly king, which is what the early disciples thought. They didn't understand him as a heavenly king. They saw him as an earthly king. And so in John's Gospel, the 11th chapter, Jesus is, is talking to them and he's saying we've got to go back down and we've got to spend some time because Lazarus is in trouble and, and we're going to go down there and let the glory of God show. And, and the disciples look at Jesus and they say, are you crazy? The last time you were in Judea, they tried to kill you, Jesus. Are you nuts? And Thomas looks at them and says, let us go with him and die with him also. I mean, this is a man of bold conviction. And then if you roll that out, three more chapters. John's Gospel, the 14th chapter. Jesus is explaining to his disciples that he's now got to go away. And the disciples are all up and I mean, their emotions are all over the place. And it's Thomas who speaks into that situation. And it's Thomas who asks the bold question. He says, Lord, we don't know where you are going. How will we ever know the way? To which Jesus responds, I'm the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Now, this is interesting, you know, in this sense. We're getting a lot of Bible, but what he's doing is he's taking what's written in the plain text and now giving a different meaning to it than what it actually says. So we've heard the plain text, what the text means is right there on the surface. You don't even have to dig for it. You don't even have to interpret it. And what he's going to do is he's going to take all of this and he's going to give us a different, inter a new interpretation that guts it of the meaning that it has just in the plain reading. Fascinating Bible twisting technique. We call, you know, basically this is what we, in hermeneutics we call a third level interpretation that obliterates the first level reading. I know it's kind of technical, but we continue. Thomas is that guy. He stands in the upper room. His, his dreams have been shattered. Oh, poor Thomas. His dreams have been shattered. Oh, man. And it's just like you. I mean, didn't you have a dream for a business? And, and, and then your dream got shattered. And didn't you have a dream for like, you know, like, a, you know, a fairy tale marriage? And then your dream got shattered. Don't worry. Jesus is going to resurrect your dreams. He's going to give you hope again. 
power and the presence of his life has been brought before his very eyes, and he doesn't know what his future is going to hold. He's a passionate man, devoted to God, following Jesus, helping Jesus carry out his mission in a nuts and bolts kind of way. But there on the cross, on Good Friday, the dream of an earthly king died. This is so sad. I mean, Thomas dreamed of an earthly king, and and then the cross happened, and his dream died. And see, it's just like you, because you know you had this dream for this billion dollar company, and and then uh, it went bankrupt, and and then your dream died. It's just like that. <laughs> oh, man, there on the cross on Good Friday, the dream that Thomas and the other disciples had was shattered. His heart was broken, and he didn't know what way to go. When Jesus breathed his last, everything that Thomas had hoped for simply disappeared. So let me ask you this. Have you ever had a dream shatter? Really? This is what you're doing with Jesus' death and resurrection? This is blasphemy. Living there today. I'm talking about, about a son or a daughter who, who you had the hopes for and expectations for and, and who went the way of a prodigal. I'm talking about a, a, a marriage where you started with such great passion and then all of a sudden over time things just fell apart before you knew it. I'm talking about that, that ideal house that you've always wanted, that, that you've had to let go of. Oh, yeah, remember that, that five-bedroom, three-and-a-half-bath, custom-made home that you had the dream of building, and, and then the mortgage lender wouldn't approve your loan. <laughs> That's just like the cross. Oh, man. Unbelievable. Because of financial challenges, the job that you've always wanted that didn't work out over time. I'm talking about a stillborn child. Or maybe not being able to conceive at all. I'm talking about having a passion for sports and, and wanting, to, wanting to move out into the college and, and the professional realm. And then su- sustaining an injury that, that prevents you from going there. Or... A musical passion that for one reason or another cannot be fulfilled. I'm, I'm talking about an unforeseen death that has left a void in your life. And what you're talking about has nothing to do with Jesus' death and resurrection. Nothing. That's not what Jesus was dying and rising for. Have you ever had a dream shattered? Have you ever had a dream shattered? Here's a little picture for you. Um, see if you can tell me what it is. You're right. It's the inside view of a cockpit of an A-10 fighter plane. Perfect. Good job. <laughs> this is what it's attached to. I was in the United States Air Force set to fly one of these birds. 
And then an inner ear problem shattered my dream. It was the very first thing in my life that I wanted to do that I couldn't accomplish. It was the very first thing in my life that even through God's help, even through deep prayer, I couldn't overcome. Have you ever had a dream shattered? Have you ever had a dream shattered? Now, a dream like mine is not as deep, as profound, as significant as some of the emotional, relational upheaval that many experience. But nonetheless, it causes you to shift directions in life, does it not? It causes you to look at the world through a different set of lenses. Have you ever had a dream shattered? Are you living with a shattered dream today? You know, uh, Pastor Nielsen, these are people who, if they're not brought to penitent faith in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins, that means the crucified and risen Jesus, um, all of these little setbacks and oopsies and disappointments in life are going to mean nothing. Because on the day of judgment, Jesus isn't going to say, aren't you glad that your dreams were resurrected? Wasn't that just fun? No, the books are going to be opened. And if they're not in him, if they're not trusting in him for the forgiveness of their sins, he will say, depart from me, I never knew you, and cast them into the lake of fire. Yeah, this is what scripture says. What you're preaching about is utter nonsense. And the text I just read from 1 Corinthians in the other sermon, yeah, let me see if I have that still up, opened here. Yeah, it says, if in Christ, this is 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 19, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. You're not teaching them of the hope of a new heavens and a new earth, of being resurrected and living days without end with Christ in on the new earth. You're basically just pointing them to, oh, Jesus came to give meaning and, and purpose to and resurrect your dead dreams in life. Again, this is a form of unbelief. Gar. It's exactly where Thomas is at in this story. It's exactly where he's at. He's in the upper room with a shattered dream, a destroyed vision, a distraught heart. And even when his best friends try to convince him that Jesus has been raised from the dead, even when that happens, he looks at them and says, No way, guys. I'm not buying it for a minute. Not for one minute. I'm not going to buy it until I can put my fingers in his hands and my hand in his side. Only then will I believe. Only when I touch him will I believe. And then Jesus shows up and everything changes. The doubter becomes a believer. And not only does the doubter become a believer... But this believer, filled with zealous passion for the Lord, ventures off to the land of India and does missions work there from 52 to 72 A.D. And there in that... Yeah, and while he was doing his mission work in, in the Indian continent, what do you think Thomas was preaching? Oh, Jesus is here. I'm here to announce to you that Jesus is here for you to resurrect your dead dreams. Uh, really? This place, he baptizes anywhere from six to eight individuals, and that group of Christians still exists today. They're called the St. Thomas Christians. Because God took his dream that was shattered on the cross, 
and restored it through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. See, Thomas's dream was shattered, but in Jesus' resurrection, one dream shattered became, became another dream shown. Thomas wanted to see an earthly king. That's what he wanted. But in Jesus' resurrection, he began proclaiming a heavenly king. And folks, that happens sometimes when we deal with shattered dreams in our life. We don't always get them back the way we hope for. But more importantly than that, when God takes hold of those dreams, he'll put them back together in the way he desires for our lives. Amen? That's his promise. It's a promise for you and for your children, for your children's children, for all those who believe in. The- yeah. Again, where does it say in Scripture that Jesus' resurrec- resurrection means that one dream shattered becomes another dream shown? You said that's a promise from God. Show me the verse that says it. There isn't one. Of Jesus. When my dream of being a pilot ended, I had to take some time off and, and just pray because I didn't, I didn't know what the heck was going on. And then in the midst of all of that, the Lord revisited something that had taken place a few years before, and that was a call to the ministry. So I went from a dream of a pilot to God's dream and the reality of a preacher. Yeah. Wow. So we we get a stand, we get a, a applause. Oh, way to go! See, Jesus resurrected a new dream for your life. Oh, that's what the resurrection's all about. Oh, I'm so glad Pastor practices what he preaches. God does. Sometimes He restores the dream exactly the way that you have it envisioned, and sometimes He takes you in an entirely new path. As I close today, I want to do two things. I want to leave you with some scripture, some promises from the word of God. And this is especially for those of you who are here who find yourself in the midst of a shattered dream or who find yourself here wondering about what the future holds. Because the Lord wants to speak into your life and give you hope today. In the same way Jesus spoke. You're not going to give them the hope for eternal life. You're just going to give them hope for a resurrected dream. Are you out of your mind? Into Thomas's life. Christ is here. That's his promise. He said, lo, I will be with you always to the end of the age. That's his promise. That is what we can cling to. It's what we can trust boldly in. And then we're going to take just a little bit of time to pray. First, the scripture. Number one, at times in life, but especially when dreams seem dashed, number one, fix your eyes upon Jesus. Hebrews 12, 2, he's the author and the perfecter of our faith. Mm-hmm. And my faith in him is for the forgiveness of my sins. What is this nonsense that you are preaching? Eyes upon Jesus. Don't take your gaze off of him. Number two, do not let your hearts be troubled. We have to remember that Jesus' promise is that he will be with us from age to age to age to age. And that his plans for our life are more profound than any of our wildest dreams or expectations. Yeah, that's John 14, 1, do not let your heart be troubled. Um, this, again, is talking about Jesus' words that he's going to leave them die, you know, things like that. Uh, this is not stated in the context of if you find yourself in 
in a situation where your dreams are dashed against the rocks. Number three, remember that heaven is our home. This is not our home. For those who confess Jesus as Lord, heaven is our home. Second Corinthians. Now, actually, technically, that's not exactly correct. It's kind of sort of true and not true. And what I mean by that is, is that flip to the end of the book, that would be the Bible, and you find that new heavens, new earth, resurrected bodies, we spend eternity on the new earth. God, and then God makes his abode with man. That, read the end of the book. That's what happens. 5.1 says this, we know that the earthly tent we live in will be destroyed, but we have a building made by God as a house in heaven that lasts forever. The story of Thomas is about a man who moves from doubt to faith, who moves from a shattered dream of seating Jesus in an earthly, kingly position to a passion for proclaiming Jesus as King of kings and Lord of lords over all creation. And proclaiming repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name, like Jesus told us to in Luke chapter 24. That Jesus, that Jesus, is the one I proclaim to you today. And I want to ask you this question. Do you know him? You- yeah, yeah, you're asking me this question, and I haven't seen any evidence that you actually know him yourself. At least you're not familiar with what the real message of the gospel is. Or if you do, you reject it because you're not preaching it. You know that Jesus. Just to press into that question a little bit more, I'd like to reflect on a piece of work that an amazing pastor did. His name is S.M. Lockridge. He's a pastor of a Baptist church, and... San Diego from 1953 to 1993. And he wrote one of the great messages expounding this question of do you know him and and who is the person of Jesus for your life today. And I'd like to just read a portion of it for you if I could. Here's what he writes. He writes, my king is a seven-way king. He's the king of the Jews, he's the king of Israel, he's the king of righteousness, he's the king of ages, he's the king of heaven, he's the king of glory, he's the king of kings, he's the Lord of lords, that's my king. And I wonder, do you know him? My king is a sovereign king. No means or measure can divide his limitless love. No far-seeing telescope can bring into visibility the coastline of his shoreless supplies. No barrier can hinder him from pouring out his blessing. He's enduringly strong. He's entirely sincere. He's eternally steadfast. He's immortally graceful. He's imperially powerful. He's impartially merciful. Say it with me, church. Do you know him? He's the greatest phenomena that has ever crossed the horizon of this world. He's God's son. He's the sinner, savior. He's the centerpiece of civilization. He stands on the solitude of himself. He's all gust and he's all unique. He's unparalleled. He's unprecedented. He's the loftiest idea in human literature. Now, I, I'm glad we're getting all of this, these accolades for Jesus. I mean, that's great and all, but... What you've basically told me is what I need him for is to uh, resurrect my shattered dreams. Yeah. Um, There's a huge disconnect here. 
highest personality in philosophy. He's the fundamental doctrine of true theology. He's the miracle of the age. He's the only one qualified to be called all-sufficient. And I wonder, say it with me, do you know him? He supplies strength to the weak. He's available for the tempest and the tried. He sympathizes and he saves. He strickens and sustains. He guards and he guides. He heals the sick. He cleanses the leper. He forgives sinners. He discharges debtors. He delivers the captives. He defends from evil. He blesses the young. He serves the unfortunate. He regards the age. He rewards the diligent. He beautifies the meek. And I wonder, do you know him? Well, this is my king. He's the key. He's the key to knowledge. He's the wellspring of wisdom. He's the doorway of deliverance. He's the pathway of peace. He's the roadway of righteousness. He's the highway of holiness. He's the gateway of glory. Do you know him? Well, his office is manifold and his promise is sure. His life is matchless. His goodness is limitless. His mercy everlasting. His love never changes. His word is enough. His grace is sufficient. His reign is righteous. And he wants to resurrect your dead dreams. Isn't that great? Wow. It's such a powerful ally to dream resurrection. Yeah. Too bad he hasn't mentioned the fact that he wants us to be forgiven by his shed blood. And ultimately for us to be raised with him on the last day. Yeah, raised on the last day to be with him for eternity. Is easy and his burden is light. Oh, I wish I could describe him to you. I really wish I could. But he's indescribable. He's incomprehensible. He's invincible. He's irresistible. You can't get him out of your mind and you can't get him off your hands. You can't outlive him and you can't live without him. The Pharisees couldn't stand him, but they found they couldn't stop him. Pilate couldn't find any fault in him. Herod couldn't kill him. Death couldn't handle him. And the grave, oh, the grave, it couldn't hold him. Now that's my king. That's my king. Way to go, Jesus. Yay, Jesus. Let's give Jesus, uh, uh, you know, uh, an applause, you know, standing O for Jesus. Way to go, man. I mean, this is so practical for me because now, I mean, this this amazing dude was gonna, is going to resurrect my dreams. Oh, man, finally I can be a fighter pilot. Do you know him? Do you know him? And if you don't know him, if you don't know this king of the universe, I want to proclaim him to you today. He died on the cross for the forgiveness of your sins. Wow, first mention, first mention of the forgiveness of sins. Wow, I didn't even think it was coming. I mean, that came out of nowhere. I mean, I wow, forgiveness of sins and dream resurrection too? Oh, man, that's just too good to be true. Hang on. That is what we call a gospel nugget. And, uh, boy, it came in really quick. Let's see if it continues to be the main point. And if he calls people to repentance... And the forgiveness of their sins. And the Bible says this. He says, if we confess with our lips that Jesus is Lord, and if we believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, 
we will be saved. From what? Dead dreams? That was your main point this sermon. If you confess with your lips that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, your dreams go on eternally. Mm-hmm. And that was what I said. That's why I asked the question. Yeah, see, if, if you believe that Jesus is Lord, confess him, then your dreams go on eternally. Wow. Church, do you know him? Let's pray. Done. Yeah, I do know him. And the one you were preaching, that's a different Jesus. Which Jesus do you believe in? The Jesus who's going to resurrect you on the last day or the Jesus who's going to resurrect your dreams? Two different Jesuses, two different Gospels, two different messages. Yeah, isn't it great that Jesus died on the cross for your sins so that your dreams can go on forever? That is contestant number four in our Worst Easter Sermon of the Year contest. you think love to get your feedback if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of fighting for the faith you can do so my email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on facebook facebook.com forward slash pirate christian follow me on twitter my name there at pirate christian till tomorrow may god richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by jesus christ despite carry death on the cross for all of your sins amen <laughs>